I was listening to your prayers as we were doing the corporate prayer, and one of the things that sort of ran through everybody's prayers and is very obvious is that the news right now is pretty bleak. The Gaza war is going on, and it isn't really clear what side of that war we're on. You'll find demonstrations against Israel in New York, in Los Angeles, on university campuses, riots in Paris and London. We have in the United States right now an unrestrained invasion from South America as hordes of teenagers from Guatemala and Nicaragua and so forth come up over the border and nobody is stopping them. And about the only thing that the United States culture has got going for it right now is technology. We make really good toys, but I don't know of anybody that's written a good symphony lately. I don't know of any great poets. I don't know of any great composers of songs. It's all pretty desolate right now. And what's really easy is to be either pessimistic or cynical. Pessimism is believing the worst about events, and then cynicism is believing the worst about people. So it's really easy to believe the worst about events because you look at events all around you and you see things going bad, and it's really easy to be pessimistic. And given the news, it's really easy to be cynical about people. And what I'm going to suggest to you is what is difficult and supernatural is to live in hard times with a sense of hope and joy. So what I want to talk to you about is how to do that. How do you live in times like we're living in right now and maintain your sense of hope and maintain your sense of joy? And in order to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the parade of homes. The section that was in today's Torah portion where you have all of the places where Israel camped for 40 years. Now, if you look at the generation in the wilderness, and of course the generation that came out of Egypt committed the sin of the spies and were told that they're not going into Egypt. I have always looked at that generation as being a generation of hopelessness and failure because they're going through the wilderness, they know that they're going to die there, they know that they're not going to get out. They know that it's their own fault. So it seems like they are just mired in hopelessness. And what I will suggest to you is that's not true. And I want you to look at that generation in a different way. And from that generation, I think we can learn some stuff. The question you really ought to ask yourself is, why did it take them 40 years? Now, I know that the scripture says, you know, for every day that you were scouting out the land, there will be a year. God is very poetic that way. I'm not at all downplaying the poetry of it, but I'm suggesting to you that the 40 years is more necessary than just to make the poetry work. And I'm going to suggest to you that that 40 years is extremely important, and it's extremely important that it took that long. And so the question we ought to ask is, what was God doing with his people in the wilderness during that 40 years? Both the generation that was going into the land and the generation that wasn't, because he was doing stuff with both of those generations, and the things that he was doing were extremely important. Now, you've all heard this before, but I will remind you. There's two kinds of time. There's linear time and there's cyclical time. Cyclical time 
is what we live in. So the earth travels around the sun. There are four seasons. There's planting, there's seed time, you know, all that kind of thing. That's cyclical. Every generation goes through a process. We're born, we reproduce, and we die. That's cyclical time. It happens over and over. And in fact, that's the story of the book of Ecclesiastes. When the preacher in Ecclesiastes talks about there's nothing new under the sun, what he's talking about is cyclical time. So everything that has happened will happen again. As somebody once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And so you keep seeing the same kinds of things happening over and over again. And I will gently suggest, by the way, there have been times that are at least as bad, if not worse, than what we're living through right now. The human race didn't end, and we're here. So the idea that this cycle repeats over and over and over again is the way God designed the world, and we live in that. And the temptation is to look at where we are in the cycle and see, oh, the wheel's coming around again. What is the point of doing all this? I've seen that before. I've done that before. Don't want to do it again. Why are we going through this over and over and over again? And in fact, that's what happens in paganism. And one of the problems with the United States right now is we are rapidly becoming a pagan nation. And the problem with paganism is there's no hope. And so what secular humanity has done, and it's, it's a function of modernity, which is you know, only about 200 years old, is the idea that there is progress. We're getting better and better. And that's the whole foundation for secularism, liberalism in the United States right now, is this idea that we are perfecting ourselves. And if we just get the right programs in place, we'll get better and better and better and better, and we'll rise to greater and greater heights, and that's a lie. But it keeps pagans hopeful, because people need hope. Nobody can live without hope, not even pagans. So what they've done is they've invented something to be hopeful in, the idea that society is progressing. Well, that's different than what we find hope in. And where hope lies is what I would call linear time. And the idea here is that these cycles are moving toward a goal. And the physical or engineering example I would use for that is everybody knows what a screw is, right? And in order for a screw to work, you've got to turn it round and round and round and round. But if it's a good screw, as it turns round and round and round, it's making progress into whatever you're screwing it into. So what you have there is a combination of cyclical time. The screw is going round and round and round. And gee, the, you know, the slot comes back to where it was before. And if you're riding on the head of the screw and you just see the slot going round and round and round, it looks like, gee, there's, here we come again. The slot's now vertical. Woo, now the slot's vertical again, wow. But what you don't see necessarily riding on the head of the screw is the fact that the whole thing is moving forward as it turns. So that's the difference between cyclical time and linear time. Cyclical time is what we're living in. That's what consumes our lives. Linear time is something that takes place over generations, over millennia. And progress in linear time is not always visible to us who are riding the head of the screw. That takes us back to the generation of the wilderness. 
And what God was doing with that generation is he was introducing a different set of cycles to the generation of the wilderness. Because they had come out of Egypt, there's no record in scripture of anybody celebrating Shabbat before the wilderness. So the first thing that God gives the generation in the wilderness is Shabbat. Here's a new cycle for you. That cycle now is one in seven. You guys need to learn to live that cycle. There's another cycle. It's the cycle of the feasts. You have Passover, unleavened bread, Shavuot, trumpets, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. So there's another cycle there that God is putting on top of the cycle of Shabbat. And that's, again, not something that they were familiar with. This is something that they got in the wilderness. On top of that, there's another cycle, the Smetta cycle, seven years. And every seven years, debts are released. There's another cycle, 50 years. And every 50 years, everybody goes back to his land. So what God is doing in the wilderness is he is introducing Israel to a different cyclical time frame. It's laid on top of the one that the world was going on. And the one the world is going on is the four seasons, life, birth, death, etc. That's the world set of cycles. And on top of that, God is laying his own set of cycles. Now, those of you who have tried to learn a skill, any skill, recognize that you can read about that skill in a book and think you understand it completely until you pick up a chisel and try and make it happen. And you discover that when you pick up a chisel and try and make this thing happen that you've read about in the book, that it doesn't turn out the way the pictures in the book look at the end, because you're not skilled. And the thing that's required in order to develop skill is practice. Like Ray playing the piano. Ray spends I don't know how many hours a week practicing the piano. Now, I can read a book, and I can tell you what the notes are, but I will guarantee you I can't play the piano because I haven't invested the practice that he's invested. So what's happening in this 40 years in the wilderness is Israel is practicing. They are taking these cycles that God has introduced to him, God's cyclical time as opposed to natural cyclical time, and they are practicing. And they are practicing over and over and over again until God's cycles become part of them. That's what the 40 years in the wilderness is doing. Now, let's look at the generation that lives and dies in the wilderness, the generation that came out of Egypt. What is their hope? And they do have hope. Their hope is that although they will not see the land, that their children and their children's children will see the land. And so what they're doing as they are living out this 40 years in the wilderness is they are preparing the next generation to move into the land and to succeed there. They are instilling in that generation God's cycles. They are instilling in that generation God's principles. They are teaching that generation the word of God. And even though they are not going to get into the land themselves, their hope is that their children will. Now, 
let's pop up to where we are today. I will suggest that we are in a cycle. And one of the things that you all have started to absorb, or you wouldn't be here if you hadn't, is the cycle of Shabbat and the cycle of the feasts. Some of you have been doing it for quite a while. Others of you are very new at it. But what you're doing by being here is you are starting to practice God's cyclical time. And if you're like me and most everybody else here, you didn't grow up with this. You grew up with another set of cycles. Some of you were completely pagan. Some of you were Sunday Christian. But you had a completely different set of cycles. So what you're doing here as you practice God's cyclical time is you are getting God's cycles into your soul, into your heart. Now, we are part of a generation that stands on other generations who lived out their lives in the hope that Messiah would come. Don't know when, but I calculated if you figure a generation is 25 years, Christianity has been 80 generations waiting for the Messiah. Judaism has been more than that, waiting for the Messiah. And every generation has gone through its cycles, but has gone through its cycles with the hope that the cyclical turning is progressing, that this is leading us to a goal, that this is heading somewhere, that we are not simply riding the head of a stripped screw that just turns around and round and round but never progresses. You all seen a stripped screw, you know, you screw it in wrong and it all sort of and you just keep turning and it turns freely but it doesn't move. And so the question becomes for us is are we riding on the head of a screw that's been stripped or are we riding on the head of a screw that's progressing? And it's been 80 generations. And what I will suggest to you is that as we look at the things that are happening in the world and we compare them to what the Bible says is going to happen, we should be able to see progress. We should be able to see that things that are predicted in prophecy are in fact happening. And by the way, there are small cycles, Shabbat, bigger cycles, Shemitah, bigger cycles, Yovel, and there are cycles that last millennia. But the idea of the smaller ones is that they're all progressing. So, what's that do for you? And why is that important? You live in a world that is in a place in the cycle right now that is not good. Sorry to say that, but it's not. So the first thing to understand is that the cycle will change. Even if this is not the generation that the Messiah's feet are going to land on the Mount of Olives, Cyclically, things will change and they will get better, get worse, get better, get worse. I mean, that's just part of a cycle. So the fact that your generation, our generation, my generation, may not be the one where Yeshua shows up in a cloud doesn't mean that we're not making progress and doesn't mean that we are condemned to forever live in sludge. We're not. So even though we are going through a period that's pretty sludgy right now, there is hope that our children and our grandchildren will live in a better time if the Messiah delays. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two is one of the reasons that the world, especially the United States, is in such a mess right now 
is because of the seductiveness of modernity. And one of the reasons that modernity is so seductive is because it's really successful at making toys. Manufacturing has been solved. Anybody here doesn't have a cell phone or couldn't have one if we wanted it? I will tell you that the computing power in your cell phone is orders of magnitude greater than the computing power that won World War II. I've been doing computers since 1964. And the stuff you got in your hand on a cell phone was just unimaginable to me when I started. So modernity is really, really good at making toys. And entertainment and all of this kind of stuff. And what it does is it sucks you in. But at its core, it's hopeless. That's why we are admired in this culture of death. And that's why abortion, for example, is such a sacrament. Because abortion not only ends a life, it ends the possibility of a life because that life never even starts. And it's the perfect black sacrament because you're killing the innocent. And by the way, that's not new. Before they had modern surgical methods of abortion, they used to take unwanted babies and put them up on a hill and let them die. So, I mean, killing babies is nothing new. That's been going on since there was humanity. We're just more efficient at it. But the whole point is, the reason we do that is because of this sense of hopelessness. Not we, they, the world. Sorry, I need to get my pronouns straight. I know you don't do that. But the reason for that is this sense that except for the toys, it's not going anywhere. We're just riding the head of the screw. And the only thing that gets better is the toys we get to play with. And that's really flashy initially, and it sucks lots of people in. But as you really start to contemplate it, there's nothing there. There's no there there. And that's what we're swimming in right now. So your job, first off, is to recognize that there is a point to all of this that's important. And it's more important than the next toy you buy, the next guy or girl you hook up with, the next movie you see, the next vacation you see, it's more important than that. It, in fact, gives us a reason for why we exist. Because we have a purpose in God's sight. That's thing number one. In that, understanding is the place where hope resides. Hope doesn't live in secular time. Hope lives in linear time, which is why this generation is so hopeless, because they're mired in cyclical time. So hope lives in linear time. And what you need to be able to understand yourself is why you have hope. And as you understand why you have hope, then the next thing you need to be is a beacon for those who have none. And they hate you, and they will revile you, and they will yell at you, and as we can see in Israel, they want to kill you. But understand that they need you. The world needs you. Because you're the only one who carries true hope. Larry was talking to me today. I love Larry for examples. He always gives me a good example for the sermons. He was up in Cheyenne. Stayed with a family who had no hope. And what Larry was able to do is walk into that thing where the husband was dying 
And he was able then to walk in there as a bearer of hope. Wasn't looking for it. You know, wasn't out there saying, oh, who can I evangelize today? He just, by coincidence, coincidence, by the way, is not a kosher word, walked into the situation, and the thing that he carried with him was hope. And that's your job. And as I say, you need to understand that there is an entire culture and an entire industry that hates you. And if it doesn't, you're not doing your job. Nobody likes to be hated. I certainly don't. But understand that it goes with the territory. And if the world doesn't hate you, you're not effective. Now, one of the things that I've said in the past, and I, I will say it again because I like it, joy and peace. Those are two sides of the same coin. Peace is joy at rest. Joy is peace in action. So at times, you're not doing anything, and you're at peace. Joy is not a feeling, by the way, not an emotion. But when you are at peace and you are doing what God had you do, you are active, then you are an agent of joy. They're two sides of the same thing. If you're not at peace, you can never experience joy. If you're not joyful, you never get peace. So your job is to walk in joy and to rest in peace. And the reason you can do that is because you have hope. And there you are different from, pick a number for percentages, I don't know what percentage of the world it is, but it's big. There you are different from a large chunk of humanity. When I was putting this together, there was a quote by Chesty Puller. Anybody remember who Chesty Puller was? Chesty Puller was a Marine. He was in charge of a regiment during the Korean War. And his regiment was at the Chosun Reservoir in North Korea. And it was winter. They were ill-equipped. And they were surrounded. And so Puller got his staff together and says, gentlemen, we're surrounded. That simplifies our problem. And he then proceeded to break out of there and, and continue on to victory. But the fact that you're surrounded simplifies your problem. There are targets all around you. We used to call in the Army a target-rich environment. And so as you go through your life, pay attention and recognize that the people around you are targets for the joy and the hope that you carry with you. And you never know when one of them is going to present himself needing what you have, but they do. And some of you, like Larry, are natural-born salesmen, and you're just really good at that. Some of you are like me. I'm not a salesman. I'm not good at that. But you all have it, and you all have the ability to use it. I'll end with a quote from Yeshua, from Matthew 28:18. And Yeshua came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The age hasn't ended yet. And you are repositories of God's understanding of cyclical time. You are also the repositories of God's understanding of linear time and hope. Go thou and do life.